Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair or in a pew back in front of you. And if you literally open to the middle of your Bible, you will find the book of Psalms. That's P-S-A-L-M-S. And you go to the right, and it's the book of Proverbs. And then go one more book to the right, and it's the book of Ecclesiastes. And you're looking for the big number four, and we're going to be in the entire chapter. So Ecclesiastes chapter four. And we've been walking through this book so that we would have wisdom for life. Because we live in a confusing world with competing voices. And if you actually take a moment to stop and hear the voices and listen to what they are saying, they often uh, point you in opposing directions. And we need some sort of clarity to know how to live this life. And if we want to live for Jesus, how to live in such a confusing world. So about 20 years ago, an uncle of mine with a couple of partners decided to uh, buy a thousand acres in a remote part of California and clear the land, which there wasn't much on to begin with, but they cleared the land in order to plant a thousand acres, say it with me, of almond trees. I know the commercial says almond, but you know, when the growers say almond, I, I listen to them, but it's an almond tree and uh, they decided to plant a thousand acres of almond trees. If you know anything about trees, you know that they need water. The only way for a tree to sustain and grow is for water. And if you've paid attention to the news, that's something that is, has been on short supply for California. And so they, uh, in order to figure out how they're going to plant this orchard and, and grow an amazing crop, they had to hire a company that would come in and test all across these thousand acres to try to find where there might be pockets of water deep beneath the soil. And they finally found a section, and so they brought in another company that, that drilled super deep, I, I can't remember, it's hundreds of feet, down into the earth's soil in order to plant a well and dig this well and put the well so that they would have enough water for their trees. Well, if you don't know much about farming, for this kind of a tree, it takes at least four years before any sort of fruit begins to bear. And then it's about six to seven years before you start getting a crop that will pay your bills. So not only did they have to spend a lot of money on buying the land, a lot of money on drilling this well, and then it's another six to seven years before you start to make your money back and begin to breathe a sigh of relief. And so they were in this process when all of a sudden they received a phone call. The well that they had dug ran dry. What do you do in that moment? And they spent hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on this piece of land. They have the trees in already. They're hoping for some sort of, of crop and harvest that would pay them back. And the very thing that they had trusted in and that they had hoped in actually ran dry. Now, for them, they just spent thousands of more dollars and found another well and, and dug another well. But I think that that's a metaphor for our lives. 
I think it's a metaphor because so often we look at life and, and maybe we plot out our life like a, an, an acreage or farmland and we have these ideas that we think will satisfy us or, or will bring us some sort of significance and purpose and meaning. And so we spend all of our time and, and all of our energy and we drill deep and we put our well in and eventually it runs dry. The very thing that you're hoping would bring you purpose and meaning and significance is gone. And so what do you do? How do you respond to that? Well, the author of Ecclesiastes this morning is actually going to show us three wells that you and I typically dig that always run dry and then point us to the only well that never runs dry. And to do that, what he's going to show us, and my hope for you and I to, to grasp this morning is this very statement, that our, our Savior is our only source for true significance. That the well that you and I uh, must dig is not a well of, of these other things the world has to offer, but rather it's a well grounded in Jesus Christ and him alone. And so with that, let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. And it is a little bit longer, but if you will, would you stand with me as we stand to honor the reading of God's word? And I trust that he will bless this reading. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been. And has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw... That all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handful of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with his riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a great reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And although a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, 
I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So we are walking through the book of Ecclesiastes to get a better perspective and better understanding on life and some wisdom in order to live life the way that God wants us to live. One of the things I fear is that we live in a time and in a place of great wealth, the kind of wealth that no nation and no period in history has ever experienced. And if we're not careful, that great wealth leads to great comfort and ease and begins to shape our minds to think that the Christian life should be easy. And so anytime difficulty happens, we begin to be, become unstable or even scared because it doesn't match up with the reality that the world is trying to convince us of. And so what do we do with that? How, how do we live in, in such a jostling and confusing world? And my hope is that as we journey through Ecclesiastes, we begin to see life differently and we begin to see our stuff differently. That the reality that none of those satisfy, they all leave us empty. And today, the, the author is going to show us three places that we run, that we think, and we begin to buy the promise that, that it'll give us some sort of significance. And each time, it leaves us utterly empty. So let's look at these three. The first that we see is the problem of significance from position. The first well that we dig and that we run to for life is the well of position. This is where you want to be better than other people. You desire uh, in your life to prove that you matter and that you have value. And so what, what we typically do here is we find our strengths and we find another person's weaknesses and we begin to compare them together. Now, now think about how that's going to work. Your strengths, somebody else's weaknesses. Who's going to win? You always win. But why do you do that? Because it feels good, doesn't it? Let's be honest. It feels good to feel like I'm better than that person next to me. And you know what the Bible calls that? It calls it oppression. Because we aren't valuing people for what they actually are or who they are. We're rather seeing them as a way to gain something from or to prove that I'm better. It's just a form of oppression. And that's what we see the author point out to us. Look at verse 1. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Now, we, we have to be a bit honest here because there are oppressions that happen all around us and yet we are, are blind to them or we just kind of live life ignorant of the fact that there are these oppressions around us. And I want to show us at least three oppressions that I want us to open our eyes to 
but then also see a couple other oppressions that maybe we, too, play in. So one of the oppressions that I think we, are, uh, we neglect or we're ignorant of is if you've ever driven from here to Harrisburg on 11 and 15, you will see all of these stores or all of these clubs that promote a sinful lifestyle. And many of us just drive past it, and if we're, if we're doing, a, doing a super good job that day, we're going to keep our eyes on the road and, and off of those signs and off of those, those places. But I wonder how many of us pray or how many of us engage to try to stop that sinful behavior. Because a lot of those women end up in that environment as a way because they don't know what else to do. And then when they start to figure out, I want to get out, their boss or, or even their pimp suppresses them and keeps them in that lifestyle to the point that they can't get out. And you think I'm being a little dramatic, I actually did some, some t- statistics, if I could say that word correctly. And Pennsylvania ranks ninth in the nation for human trafficking. Number nine, and often human trafficking starts through those kind of nightclubs. And do you know what one of the worst spots in our state for human trafficking actually is? It's a Route 15 corridor from Maryland to New York. They say it's one of the worst routes for human trafficking in our state. I don't say this to to guilt us. I say this to awaken us that, that we as a church should do something about it, at least pray, but maybe even figure out ways and ask the Lord, what do we do to stop this oppression? Or, or how about the second oppression that happens in our backyard? Just go to the Dunkin' Donuts Plaza and behind you'll see loan shark places that, that know that you are in desperate need of money. And so what do they do? They are more than willing to loan you money at like 20% interest knowing that you'll never be able to pay that back and you'll constantly have to borrow more or have to be on this monthly payment for years on end. And we think nothing of it. Or how many times employers don't pay market rate for their employees because they care more about the bottom line than they care about caring for their employees. These are just three ways that, that just happen in daily life. And, and you might be sitting here saying, well, okay, I don't do that. I didn't get caught in that. I, I'm not doing that. But what about the oppressions that we partake in? What about the ways in which we uh, uh, actually play into this oppression? Have you ever used someone for your own gain? Maybe you see somebody, maybe it's even a famous person. And you're like, man, if I could just get a picture with that person and then show everybody, then all of a sudden people start to praise me because I know that person. Or maybe you look at two people who walk in a room and you immediately start to size them up and you think, which one do I want to be a friend with? And you start to choose based on how they look or how they portray themselves. I was at a conference uh, a couple months back and the pastor 
uh, told a story of, uh, of his church, and they have a Sunday night service. And as he walked up to his church, he saw this person there, and he thought nothing of it. He's kind of a clueless guy. And so he walks into the Sunday night service, and they have this potluck meal, and then they uh, go and, and spend time uh, together and under God's word. And, and during the potluck meal, it was interesting because there's two guests. One guest sat over here and everybody ignored, and this other guest over here, everybody flocked to. And after the service, people went up to the pastor and said, Pastor, do you know who that person was? I don't have a clue. Did you know that that person is a famous, popular singer, the kind of singer whose songs are on the radio constantly? He said, I, I, don't, I don't really care. Like, and in that moment... It hit him. You see, his people had sized up these two guests. And one who was popular, everybody flocked to. And the other one who looked homeless, everybody ignored. And I wonder how often we do that in our own lives. We ignore those that the world would consider outcasts. It's a way of oppression. And notice how he responds to this. He says in verse 1, And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. What a sad and pitiful state. They feel this oppression, and there's no one there to comfort them. But why? Well, look at how he concludes verse 1. He says, On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Why do you and I often not step into and try to stop oppression? Because the oppressor has a lot of power and we feel utterly powerless. It's just a harsh reality, isn't it? Like we can beat ourselves up, but there's also the reality that the, the one doing the oppression has enormous amount of power. And so how does this author respond? Look at verse 2. He says, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. He's saying, it's better to be dead. Well, why? Well, look at verse 3. He says, but better than both is he who's not yet been. So he's saying, it's better to be dead than to experience or see oppression. It's actually even better to have never been born. Why? Because you've never seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Do you get what he's saying? That when we, you know, we think, oh man, I, I don't partake in those kinds of ultimate or, or horrific oppressions. But at the root of them, it, it is this desire for power to feel like you're better than somebody else. And so maybe your oppression doesn't result in human trafficking, but it does result in somebody else being pushed down and yourself elevated. And in that moment, the author is saying it's better to never have experienced it or seen it because it's evil. It's something that we should take great warning and take serious that we too don't become part of the problem. That we don't become part of the oppression. And then he shows 
a little bit more clarity to this oppression. Look at verse 4. He says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. You get what he's saying? He's saying at the root of all of this toil and all of this overworking and this oppression and this jockeying for position is one simple foundation. It's wanting to be better than other people or wanting to have what other people have. Have you ever experienced that? You know, you look at what somebody else has and you think, why can't that be me? It's not fair that they got that gift and I don't. And then we start to buy the lie. If I just work harder and work harder and work harder and work harder, then maybe I can finally get to the place that I want to get to. And notice what he calls it, though. He says it's vanity and striving after the wind. We've been in this sermon series for a couple of weeks now. Anybody gone outside yet and try to catch the wind in a box? Doesn't work. He's saying the same thing, because as much as you and I strive for position, there's always going to be somebody else coming into your life who has a higher position than you. It's a striving after the win. And so at that point, we've got three options. What are the options? Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. This is the person who just says, I give up. Well, that doesn't sound like a good option. He then shows us the second option. Look at verse 6, second and third. It says, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. The second option is that we keep trying. And again, it's always elusive. But did you hear the third option? The third option is that it's better to have a handful of quietness. It's better to be content with what God has given you already, to just rest and enjoy and say what the Lord wills is what I will enjoy. Is that you? And no matter what the Lord gives you, you're able to look to him and just say, I trust that you are in control. I don't need to jockey for position. Rather, I can rest and your sovereign power. That's not the only well that we run to. There's a second well that we run to, and that's the well of possessions. This is the problem of significance from possession. This is where we, in order to feel better, we buy more and more and more stuff. Anybody like new stuff? You know, uh, here's, here's what's so ridiculous. This is this is probably one of the corniest examples I've ever had and maybe even a little bit embarrassing. But as I was writing this sermon, I got a new mouse for my laptop computer. And the funniest thing is that any, any way I could, I wanted to use that mouse. I wanted to click on this and click on that. I just liked that I got something new. It's a mouse for crying out loud. I've used a mouse before. And yet, just the idea of having something new, I, I just, man, it was exciting and cool, and, and I wanted to use it. I wonder how often that happens to us, right? We get a new shirt, or get a new pair of pants, or maybe get a new car, or get a new house, or 
whatever it might be. And we allow that to be what gives us significance. But notice how the author describes that. Look at verse 7. This time he just says it at the beginning. He says it's vanity. It's pointless. It's a mist. Here one day, gone the next. I am no longer that excited over my mouse. You probably are thinking you should have never been excited. I get it. But that new shirt will eventually get ruined. That new car will get that dent. Some of you know that. But look at how sorrowful this is. Because look at what this person's doing. In verse 8, the author says, One person has no other, either son or brother, and yet there's no end to all of his toil. And he's not satisfied with riches. Do you see what he's doing? He is so locked in to getting more and more stuff, thinking that if I just have more stuff, then that angst inside of me will be satisfied and will, will turn into peace. And finally, I will, I will get what I'm ultimately looking for. And yet, as he strives and strives and strives and strives, he finally lifts up his head and sees, there's nobody else around me. He has been so locked into his possessions that he has no one to share them with and no one to enjoy them with. Because notice what he says. Yet there's no end to all of his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? It's like the author is able to look at his life and say, this seems pointless. How much is ever enough. He just keeps getting more and more and more. And what will happen to all of his stuff when he dies? The state will take it or it will end up in a junkyard. And he took no time at all to just breathe and enjoy what God has given him. And we've got to be mindful how easy that is for us to just keep working and gaining more and wanting more and more money. And really the question is, how much do we need? Do you really need more? I wonder how many of us are working not out of need, but to maintain a lifestyle. And if we would just give up that lifestyle, we could actually work less and have more margin in our life, both time-wise, but also margin financially to partake in what God is calling us to, which is the kingdom of God. And how much more free we would feel from the constraints of this world. Because the, the commercials on TV are telling you, you just need more and more and more. How much is ever enough? Eventually, we've got we've to hit this, this barrier that says enough is enough. And some of us just keep buying more and more stuff. And it doesn't satisfy, does it? Years ago, I made a purchase that I thought would bring me joy. There's been some good things about the purchase, I bought a projector. 
I thought, this is going to be great. We don't have a TV. We can project things on the wall and watch TV and movies and sermons. And this is going to be wonderful. So I spent a couple hundred bucks, bought this projector. Guess what happened when that thing broke? Now I had to go out and buy a new projector. Because the very thing that I thought would satisfy now broke and I have to replace it. But if you pause for a second, how did I feel five years before I purchased the projector? When the projector that did not exist broke, I did not go out and replace it. I was free. And I wonder how, how often we buy things that we don't really need and then they break and we're like, oh, I got to replace that. And if we never bought it in the first place, we would be much more free. I don't have to replace something I don't own. How wonderful would that be? And the problem that we see is that so often we put possessions above people. Because notice what he says in verse 9. He, he continues to show us how, the, the problem here. He says, two are better than one. Why? Because they have a good reward for their toil. What's the problem with the one? Why do people go at it alone? One reason is because we don't want to share the profits. We want it all for ourselves. But he says it's actually better with two. Because two coming together, two ways of thinking, two ways of interacting with life, you can leverage the power and the strength and the ability, and you actually go further. Your, your reward is greater. But this person is so convinced that possessions will satisfy that they push everybody else out of their life and they focus on what they want above people. They put possession over people. You don't realize that actually if you put people over possession, you probably end up with more possession. And he shows us why this is such a big deal. Look at verse 10. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. What a pity to go through life and have been so focused on your dreams and your goals that you have no one else around you that when you fall that they can lift you up. Church, do you have someone like that? That you know no matter what, when you fall, they are there to help you up. I remember years ago, I was in college and a friend of mine, we'd grown pretty close and so we'd go out for dinner and go hang out uh, and, and just enjoy time together. And, and one night in particular, we went over to Popeye's Chicken. If you've ever been to Popeye's Chicken, it's, it's okay. Uh, and so we went to Popeye's Chicken and we parked in the back. And the door was in the front on, on the street, and so we had to park in the back, and, and he got out ahead of me and started walking about five, six steps ahead of me, and all of a sudden, out of the corner, a guy pops out and cuts me off and immediately says, give me all your money. Huh? Give me your money. You owe me money. Give me money. I had never met this guy. And he starts getting more hostile towards me. And I say, hey, Mark. Now, Mark is a guy that's shorter than me, but man, I mean, he's buff. So I knew I, I was in good company. And so, hey, Mark, he turns around and walks back. And the guy says, I'll let you go, but don't ever come back here without money for me. And he walks away. And in that moment, I was so grateful that I had a friend helping me because two can overtake one. That's what he says, doesn't he? 
Look at verse Verse 11 and 12, he says, again, two lie together to keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? In verse 12, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. I experienced it that night. Two withstood. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. But whenever we put our power and our, our desire and drive for position or our desire and drive for possession above people, what we will eventually get to is this place where we look around and we say, I have all the things I want. I might even have the title that I've been desiring, but I have no one to enjoy it with. And the author says, what a lowly state to find yourself in. Give up the position. Give up the possession. Because you and I were actually created for relationships. That's not the only well. Those aren't the only two wells that we run to. There's a third well that we run to, and that's the well of praise. This is where we see the problem of significance from praise. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, we read that God created man in God's image. So you and I are created with a purpose and a direction and really a drive for significance, which is this drive to reflect God across the world. The problem is that we take that and we twist it and we run to these other places. And instead of reflecting God to the world, now we come to the place where we want to reflect ourselves to the world. We come to the place where we want others to look at us and say, oh man, they did a good job. You know, one of the greatest poisons of a pastor is to get done preaching. And at the end, to have people come up and say, man, that was a wonderful sermon. I call it a poison because it's great. I love the encouragement. But if I'm not careful, that sinks a little bit further down. And I start to think, yeah, that was great, wasn't it? I was, I was awesome. And I'm assuming you, you feel the same way, either in your family or at work, that, that there's a joy to encouragement, but... If we're not careful and we don't guard our hearts, that can sink deeper and begin to sprout this desire for approval from other people. And so now we don't see people as people. We see them as an object to give me praise. And notice how this plays out. Look at verse 13. He talks about a poor and wise youth is better than a foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So just imagine for a moment you have this man who is a business executive or woman, a business executive uh, in their 50s. Every decision that they've made has made their company money and they keep climbing the ladder and they're at the top of their game. They're on the cover of Fortune magazine or Forbes magazine, whatever it is. They are the kind of person that has finally ascended to the greatest heights, but they reach that point where they become rigid, and they become stuck, and they begin to believe their own fanfare to the point that they no longer take advice. And notice what the author just said, it's better to be young and take advice than to be someone on the top of their game who is too arrogant to listen to other people. 
Now, we've got to be careful here, right? Because there's two kinds of young people. In young people, there's two kinds of you. There's the young who know that they don't have it together, and so they're going to seek, hum- uh, via humility, they're going to seek answers from other people. They're going to uh, ask questions. They're going to read. That's the kind of humility that he's wanting. And yet, there's a way in which we can be young and think that all the other generations before us got it wrong and we have somehow figured it out. That's not the humility that he's asking for. Just because you're young doesn't make you humble. In fact, I just want to encourage you that one of the things I've had to learn throughout my life is that there is this category, the younger you are, the more I think we need this, there is this category in life that exists. The problem is, is that you don't know it exists. And so you operate life thinking that you have the answers, and yet you're completely clueless to this other category. And so you look at your parents, you look at older people, and you think, they don't get it. How do they operate like that? And the only way to unlock that category is to actually go through trials in life. Because when life actually sucker punches you, And then you start to realize, oh, I didn't know what I thought I knew. So whether you're young or whether you're old, I think that that's true for all of us. If we're not careful, we can start to think that, man, I've got it figured out. And I think what the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to help us to understand is that you haven't figured out until life punches you in the gut. Then you don't have anything figured out. And we have to come back to the Lord. But notice what he says. We've got this young person. And he actually even talks about how uh, the, the glorious story of the rise of this young person. Look at verse 14. He went from prison to the throne. Even though in his own kingdom he had been poor. It's the kind of story that we make movies out of. It's the kind of story that we write books and even book series and we just love and enjoy, right? It's the kind of story that that it's the rags to riches kind of story. In fact, one commentator reminds us that it's the very story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. If you remember, Joseph is one of 12 brothers. He is sold into slavery by his brothers. Through that, he ends up in prison And it's by God's providence and his controlling of all things that he is the only one that can interpret the dream of the king. And because he interprets the dream of the king, he gets uh, released from prison and rises to the second in charge over the whole kingdom of Egypt. It's that kind of story that we see here. And it's the kind of story that we love and the kind of story that we praise. And yet it's, if we really think about it, an unstable story. Because put yourself in the ancient world where nations were warring constantly and and the one in control is regularly changing. Maybe even in your own lifetime, you might have seen multiple kings, not by election, but because he killed off the other ones. And so in that moment, as you start to see two kings war against each other, a young one and an old one, you have a choice to make. Which king are you going to hook your cart to? Which king are you going to align yourself 
with? The king that you've been following for 20 years? Or are you going to look at the situation and realize, that guy's getting old. He's about to lose. They show this in the animal kingdom all the time. I was watching a National Geographic years ago where, where in the bear families, they, they do this, where there's a, a papa bear, if you will, and he's got the cubs and, and the whole family's there. And then all of a sudden, there reaches a point where one of the, the cubs grows big enough where he starts to wrestle papa bear. And whoever wins that fight controls the family. And eventually... The cub will win that fight. And when the cub wins that fight, guess what happens to Papa Bear? He gets banished and has to live the rest of his life on his own because he's now kicked out of the family. And so you can get a sense in this moment that you're wanting to follow. Perhaps this older king's getting old, so you're wanting to follow the young one. And that's what he's saying. He's, you know, this guy went from the prison to the throne. And then look at verse 15. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth was to stand in the king's place. This guy overcame the prior king and now he's reigning and he is ruling and you're so happy that you're connected with him. But think about where that train ends up. Because what's going to happen in 10, 20, 30 years? That one that you put all of your hope, all of your trust in, will too be overtaken by a younger. We see this in the business world all the time. You do well in your job. You get to the the point where you're in your 50s and all of a sudden, maybe your boss looks and says, I can get a 20-year-old to do that job for half the cost. Now you're a greeter at Walmart. So the praise that this king felt like he had and and the glory and splendor is gone in a moment's notice. Because that's what he shows us in verse 16. There was no end to all the people. Everybody was rejoicing over this king. Maybe you're in that position. Everyone's rejoicing over the job that you're doing or the way that you're a parent or, or whatever it is. Everyone's rejoicing. And yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. There's going to be a day that that person too will be pushed aside. There will be a day that you and I who love all of the approval and want everyone to just praise how great we are, we too will just be pushed aside like nothing else. So even our desire for praise and approval washes out to the point that he says this too. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. So what do we do at this point? He's already told us that striving for a title and position, that fails us and and our possessions will eventually leave us alone and And now we have all of this praise that is here one second and gone the next. And our very search for significance and purpose and meaning, none of it is fulfilled. So what do we do? Well, this is where we see our final point. 
And that is the promise of significance from our Savior. That we have a significance that comes from our Savior, Jesus Christ. The reason why we read from the opposite testament that we're preaching out of is, is again, because I want us to see that the entire Bible uh, comes together and centers on Jesus Christ. In fact, if you were to read Luke 24, 44, Jesus says that the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. And so whenever we read anything, we, we can't just stay there, but we've got to read it all and see it in light of the entire Bible. And if we look at John chapter 4, we find another person going to a well looking for significance. In John chapter 4, we, we find this woman who goes to this well to pull up water in the middle of the day, which is the worst time, the hottest part of the day. But she goes there because she doesn't want anyone else to see her because she is embarrassed over the places that she has sought significance. And we read in that story how Jesus comes up to this woman and he says, hey, can you, can you get me some water? And she's like, well, time, time out. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, you are talking to me. There, there's two problems here. You're a man, I'm a woman. In our culture, we don't do that. Secondly, you're an Israelite and I'm a Samaritan and that is a big no-no. And Jesus says, Hold on. If you knew who was talking to you, you would actually be asking me for water. I'm real confused at this moment because you don't have a pail, you don't have a bucket, like you have nothing to get water. How are you going to get water? And he just says, the water I give is an eternal water. It's the kind of water that satisfies your thirst. I don't know about you, if I have to go to a well every day to go get water and someone's now promising a water that, that I will never thirst again, I'm like, I want that water. That'll save me some time, save me some energy for her, save me some embarrassment. And so she's like, I want that water. You know what Jesus says? He says the most odd thing. Okay. Go get your husband. Um, uh, I'm not married. You're right. You've had five husbands. And the one that you're living with now is not your husband. Do you see what he's doing? He is starting to zero in on the very place that she is searching for significance. This, this place of approval, this place of acceptance. And he's zeroing in saying, I can give you water for the very thing that you're longing for. And in that moment, she immediately diverts the attention and she says, whoa, 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 okay, okay. Let's not go there. Let's start talking about worship. And Jesus is like, great, love worship. Love the concept of worship. It's wonderful. And she said, okay, well, are we supposed to worship on that mountain or that mountain? And Jesus says, whoa, there's coming a time where you're not going to worship on either mountain. But you're going to worship God in spirit and truth. And she says, huh. I know that when the Messiah comes, the, the one that we're looking for to satisfy us, I know when he comes, he, he's going to tell us all things. And Jesus just simply says, I am he. You see what he does in that moment? 
she is there longing for something. Her entire life is aiming at some sort of approval and meaning and significance. And in that moment, Jesus just kindly unpacks all of that and says, what you're really aiming for and what you really need is me. Only I can give you that significance. And how does Jesus give us that significance? He gives it to us by setting aside the temporary nature so that he can give us an eternal significance. You realize that Jesus had all significance in heaven. He had no rhyme or reason other than the plan of the Father for him to enter into humanity. And as he enters in, he, he comes. And in Matthew 3, we see him come to the Jordan River to be baptized, which is uh, flabbergasting because baptism is the sign of repentance from sin and turning to, to God and devoting yourself to God. And Jesus had no sin. And yet in that moment, he laid aside his significance so that he might identify with you and I who are longing for significance. We're longing for acceptance, and he identifies with us. And in that moment, the father proclaims, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And do you know what he does with that? In that moment, if that was you and I, we'd be like, ah, God just verified that I'm awesome. I'm going to tweet that. I'm going to put that on Instagram. Whatever it is, I'm going to let the whole world know how great I am, and I'm going to find the comfiest chair, and I'm going to sit, and I'm going to rule. And what he actually does is he goes to a cross. He lays all of that aside and he leverages it by dying. By rid being ridiculed and mocked. By having the wrath of God poured out on him. Because he knew what God was doing. Because three days later he rose from the dead. And he didn't just rise. You know, so often we celebrate Easter. Oh, it's amazing. Christ rose from the dead. But that's not it. That's not the totality. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that Christ didn't just rise. He actually ascended into heaven. And he's seated in the heavenly places. And now every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He gave up temporary significance. Because he desired eternal significance. And do you know what he does with that eternal significance? Paul tells us in Romans, he now in, invites you and I to come to him. That all who call upon the name of the Lord can be saved. He gave up all desire for earthly praise. All desire for earthly position all desire for earthly possession so that you and I could come and call on his name and we might be saved. And when we call on his name, we are given a greater reality. You see, the problem isn't that we're searching for significance. The problem is, is that where we're searching is too low. We have set our sights on a position, on a possession, and on a praise that is far too low. But if we come to faith in Christ and trust in Christ, he gives us a greater position. In fact, 
We get to seat. We get to sit in the heavenly realm with Christ. He gives us a greater possession. He gives us an eternal life, an inheritance that Peter says is unfading, undefiled, imperishable. And he gives us a praise, a praise that for all of eternity, we get to enjoy the presence of God, praising him, but also having him declare to us, well done, good and faithful servant. So if you're not a believer in here this morning, I want to plead with you. You have been born with the desire for significance. That's not the problem. The problem is that you've bought the lie that the world can give you significance. And it always fails. It's only Christ that can give you significance. I want to plead with you to come and trust in Jesus Christ this morning. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to plead with you. We are so often distracted and we buy into the promises of the world. I just want to plead with you to lay those aside and return to Christ. Submit your life to Christ. Trust in His significance. Because it's only He that can satisfy and give you purpose and meaning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word this morning. God, we thank you for the fact that we can come to Christ and that we can receive a significance that is far greater than ourselves, far greater than anything this world has to offer. And I pray that you would open our eyes to see that these other wells run dry. Father, I confess how easy it is to, to want praise from people or to want things to feel good about our life or, or to, to want a position that others that, that we can feel more powerful than others. We confess that and we ask that you would replace it with a desire for your praise and that we would rest in the possession and position that you give because we know that only then are we satisfied. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.